if I can remove the emotional part of that, of, oh, I failed in my plan, to recognize that, hey, this might be an opportunity that I had not had my eyes open to. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for tuning into this very special episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. We are live at the Go Buntance event in Park City, Utah. And we have an amazing guest to share with you today. His name is Chris Waddell. And with 12 Paralympic medals to his name, he is the most decorated male mono skier in history. In addition, he's one of a handful of competitors to have won world championships in both winter and summer sports. He competed in four Winter Paralympics, winning 12 medals, and three Summer Paralympics, winning a silver medal in the 200 meters in Sydney. He was introduced into the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame in 2009 and the Paralympics Hall of Fame in 2010. The Dalai Lama honored Waddell as an unsung hero of compassion in 2005. People Magazine named him one of the 50 most beautiful people in the world in 98. There are countless accolades. I could go on and on and on. We're going to have such a great discussion. Chris, welcome to The Daily Helping. It is so great to have you here today. Dr. Richard, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me as a guest, and I look forward to our conversation. Yeah, we're going to have a great one. And I always start by asking my guests to kind of peel back the onion, give us their superhero origin story. And yours is an amazing one. I was privileged to hear you speak on stage yesterday, and now here you are with all of us today. So let's jump in the time machine and go back and talk about what started you on this amazing journey that you've gone through? Oh, what well, origin story is the hard one, right? Where did, where did it all begin? I mean, obviously it began back in 1968 to a certain extent when I was born, but, uh, but no, I mean, I think the, the biggest change in my life was obviously I had a skiing accident and broke two vertebrae in my back, ended up paralyzed from the waist down, which was the most traumatic thing. But it was also, as I said last night, the most powerful time that I've ever had in my life in that in that that a lot of the things that tripped me up before had to kind of like I had to kind of let go of those things let go of the the insecurities the worries the anxiety the rage the the panic and say okay I've got to function I've got to be my best self which which is funny because I I don't know about you but I went through you know school thinking that there was something better, you know, that, that there was something better inside of me, but it was a matter of accessing that. And how did I access it? And, and in some ways, the, the tragedy, the trauma was what opened up my eyes to the best version of myself. And that led to sport and those kinds of things. Yeah, I, 
I want to go back and, and get a little more detail. How old were you when that accident happened? I was 20 years old okay. when I had the accident, yeah. And in college? In college, ski racing in college. And yeah, that was a big part of who I was. And hoping that, hoping that you know, I mean, you leave college and that's kind of like you're, you're leaving, the, leaving the nest, right? That, that, okay, I'm going to be on my own. I want to demonstrate that I can be successful later on, which was a huge worry. And, and I'd chosen ski racing in a lot of ways to prove to myself that I had what it took to be in the most competitive environments for the rest of my life. And, you know, took a little bit of a twist that yeah, I hadn't expected. It sure did. Now, now pre-accident, did you see yourself competing on a world stage? Was that on your roadmap things to do? Competing on the world stage? No, I really didn't think I wasn't going to compete in the Olympics. I wasn't going to, you know, college was going to be going to be the, the, the pinnacle of my career, hopefully. Okay. hopefully. So what were you going to be when you, when you grew up? What was I going to be when I grew up? That is a question. And I look at this now because it's sort of that sliding doors moment, right? Where I took the first semester off of school and worked in New York City. I worked in a law firm in New York City. And so, so being a lawyer was, was potentially where a, a way that I might've gone, I might've gone into, you know, into banking or something like that. And, you know, I, I have a lot of friends who did exactly that. I don't know where I would, I was studying international politics and economics. There might've been an international component and, and that's the sliding door part. And that's the funny part too, right? We can project forward. Well, if this hadn't happened, that's what I was going to do. I'm, you know, probably more likely to have been wrong than I am to have been right. I might have started in something, but that might not have been exactly what I ended up doing. So interesting how that always works out that way. It's the, it's the, the snap second of our life that forks us in a total different direction. It, it does. It does. And I remember not even really going to career counseling in college, you know, it's, it's a big part of you go to college to get a job in some ways. And, and I was going to go be a ski racer and they didn't have a lot of data on <laughs> what you're going to do, how, how I go make it as, as an adaptive ski racer after I graduate from college. So you recover from the accident to the extent that you could. When did it become a mission? When did it become real for you that this was what you were going to do? Uh, you know, I mean, the mission part in some ways, I think kind of crept up on me because first it was, it was immediately about recovery and, and it was about recovery and it was about doing things that nobody thought were possible kind of right. I mean, this is it. Like this is, this is the diagnosis. You're paralyzed. You'll never walk again. You know, and what you end up hearing in there is you'll never walk again and your life is over. And, and I was an athlete, right? And so being an athlete, I was like, well, that's right for those people. It's not right for me. I, I see the denial in that, you know, for what it is. But at the same time, it was a matter for me, one, in the recovery of going, okay, you signed up for whatever is going to come your way. That is that this is about the education. This is about proving that you can be successful in that moment. Well, guess what? You have a moment. You have a moment that's a little bit bigger than the moment that you imagine, but you have a moment. The mission part, in a lot of ways, came as a result of going back to college. I went back to college two months after my accident, and nobody had really interacted with anybody in a wheelchair. 
So I don't really know what's going on. I know a little bit more than they do. I'm suddenly an educator. I am teaching them what I need when I'm not positive exactly what I need. In that, I started speaking for a lot of other people. I mean, it becomes allegorical in some ways. I was the example that that represented the whole in a lot of ways. And and I think that, that that's where the mission part of it came is that, hey, I want to be seen as a viable, contributing human being. I don't want to be seen for the trauma of what happened to me. And, and, and hopefully being able to, ch- to change the way that they saw other people as well and recognizing that I became a mouthpiece. And as I became more successful in sport and things like that, I had a bigger platform. Well, I love that that's the seeds for what you're doing now were really planted then. And we're, we're going to talk about your work now, but take us through the journey. It's almost like the Rocky montage gone, gone, you know, gone wrong as you were really training and retraining yourself to ski and compete at that level. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it's funny because I get asked a lot of time, a lot of times, like, how, how did you do it? You know, how did you do the recovery? And I can't take full credit for that. That was really a lot of it was was from my parents. I mean, I knew that this that they would be there. They would they would walk through walls. They would walk through fire. You know, whatever it was, like they were there for me, and not to direct me and not to say, "Hey, this trauma affected all of us." It's like, how can we help you get better? How can we best support you? There was no there was no question whatsoever, and that that allowed me to go forward. That allowed me to to have the confidence to to take some take some risks and to, and to make some mistakes and fail and, and get back up and learn that, Hey, I'm maybe I'm not as fragile as I thought I was, but the skiing part of it was, I I mean, I went out with my coach, my coach in college the first time and first day that I went out in a monoski and wasn't really able to do much of anything, fell over and fell over and fell over and went, okay, how do you make this thing turn? I thought I knew how to turn a ski. And then after that, I went out with my, with my mother and father, both of whom had had taught skiing. So between the three of us, we kind of felt like we knew something. We didn't, we'd never seen one of these things before. None of us had ever seen a mono ski before. Nobody had ever seen one, somebody skiing one, but we hadn't even seen it. And my brother was a ski racer as well. It was all American in college and those kinds of things. And so between the four of us, we felt, you know, Hey, we kind of know what's going on. And, and really what we would do, my father took his skis off and would sort of ski me to a wide open section and sliding behind me on his boots so that he could direct me and then go, okay, well, uh, let's see how it works. And there were a lot of times that I fell before I even made that first turn and got back up and then, okay. And I mean, I think the first time I had a full run, it took like an hour to get down something that would have taken me a minute and a half or something like that before. And it was the most exhausting, emotional mental experience of my life because where I had taken like huge, you know, where, where it was like, it was one run or it was, you know, qu- quarter of a mile or something like that. Thinking between, it was like, suddenly it was, it was like an inch. Like I had to think myself down every single inch of the mountain. And that was 
everything was brand new. It was like translating into a foreign language while holding my breath underwater. Like the immediacy of it was like, okay, you got to get something going. And I'm like, hold on, hold on. I've got to think my way between, think my way here. And so it was, it was absolutely exhausting. Was there ever a point where you felt like this isn't going to work? I'm going to give up. You know, it, I don't know that I allowed myself to have that point. Skiing for me was representative of my recovery. And if I wasn't able to ski, then what I thought was my life potentially in the hospital or could be the worst case scenario might be true. And that was, so I don't know that I really let myself think that things could go wrong in that sense. But yeah, I remember being frustrated as well and thinking, okay, I can't do this. The thing that was, that was amazing about starting to learn to ski again is that I had 15 years of ski racing. I, I knew what I was supposed to do. And my learning was compressed in a really small time frame. So that first day I went out, the next day I came back and I was 100% better the next day. Things that I couldn't even imagine doing. I don't know how this happened. It was almost like by osmosis that, that it actually happened, that I tried the first day and I couldn't do it. And then I came back the next day and I could do a little bit more. I went to the, the spring break of the, that year that I was back and started mono skiing. I went out to Seattle, Washington to get a racing wheelchair built. And the guy who built my chair, a guy named Jim Martinson, had lost his legs both above the knee to a bouncing Betty in Vietnam. He came back, wanted to learn how to ski or wanted to teach his kids how to ski because it was part of the culture of his family. So it developed a monoski and thought, oh, you know what? Like, I'll be there and then they'll get too good for me and they'll leave and that'll be okay. But I will have had that moment. And this guy in his 60s ended up running the the X Games, the monoskier X at the X Games. Like, I still don't think his kids or much of anybody else can keep up with this guy. But I was building a uh, racing wheelchair with him. He'd also won the Boston Marathon because if I was going to train, if I was going to be the best in the world, I had to train to be the best in the world. And so I was there getting a racing wheelchair. We went and skied one day. And I skied with Jim and we got off the lift and I watched him ski and I think that was the first time that I exhaled that I thought, okay, okay, I still can't do this, but it can be done. I'm watching him and it's, it's not the struggle that I encountered. It was a sport. It was art. It was beautiful. It was strong. It was, it was, it was amazing. And so that I think, I think I had those feelings, but I couldn't voice those feelings because because they might be true if I voiced them. And when I saw him, I went, okay, okay, all right. A lot of work to do, but it can happen. It's like when, when the four-minute mile happened, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, a bunch of people were running the four-minute mile. Everybody's <laughs> breaking the four-minute mile at that point. Yeah, exactly. So, so that's the, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's the way it works, right? That sometimes, sometimes we have to see re the reality of it before we can actually believe it for it's, ourselves. It's only crazy until somebody does it. Is, is, yeah, exactly. The expression. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. 
I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. So talk to us a little bit about the training for the Olympic, the Paralympics, what that was like, how that went, you know, because I, I know that, you know, now you're, you're going, and, and you described this a bit yesterday, which I didn't know that there's different kind of tiers of injury associated with that. So talk to us first a little bit about that. So to give us the context and then, and then share your story. Please. Sure. So as a, as a monoskier, there were three classes of monoskiers. And that was based on level of lesion. And most of us, most of us have no reason to know that there's any difference, right? We hear paralyzed from the neck down, paralyzed from the waist down, quadriplegic, paraplegic, that's, that's kind of it. But each vertebrae corresponds to a level of function and a level of sensation. And I'm in the most disabled of the three categories. So I have kind of the muscles just below my sternum and really that's about it. I don't have those functional sitting balance oriented muscles, which, you know, as I told you guys last night, somebody called my class pumpkin sitting on a fence in the wind for our propensity to topple over. Not a lot of balance. And, and so there are three classes. Then the next class is the class that really is paralyzed in the waist down. And the third class is the class that is is really sort of, you know, the, the incomplete paraplegics, the, the people who can stand a bit, the people who can walk a bit, the double amputees. It's, it's a different world where they have a whole lot more function than those of us who are trying to direct this thing with, with, you know, kind of, kind of from your sternum up kind of thing. And so, you know, to me, I wanted it to be about skiing. I didn't want it to be about disability. Sport is an amazing thing in that there are people who surprise us all the time, right? They're the people that we look at and go, oh, that guy's going to be an amazing baseball player based on the way he looks. Then there's somebody else that you think, you know, doesn't even, doesn't even make sense. And he's the guy that, that is the best one of the bunch. I mean, you look at the guy like, you know, even a guy like, like Ichiro or somebody like that, you know, you watch him and you look at him and he's like, he looks like this, this little skinny little guy. And then you watch him hit and you watch him throw and you go, Wow, that is absolutely phenomenal. Just just amazing. And those, I mean, like a spud web in basketball. Mm-hmm. This little like five, 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 seven, seven is that what it was? It who's throwing down, who's dunking, right? And you go, really? I didn't think that was possible. That's why I watch sport for for the surprises. And and I wanted to be that surprise. But also the general public, I'm telling you about three different classes of monoskiers. Most people don't know what's going on there. They're looking at it going, you guys all look the same to me. And if we all look the same for me, I, I didn't want to say, Hey, no, that was a good run for me based on who I am. I wanted to be a good run and I wanted to be simple for the audience. And I said, Hey, I want to be the fastest monoskier in the world because that's the only way that's the only, only way people are actually going to understand it. And, and so I set about doing that and it was, uh, it was partially, I had, I had a huge advantage in having been a ski racer. I knew what it felt like to make a good turn. That is a gigantic advantage because if you feel it, then you go, okay, 
what did I do that I just felt that? Let's do it again over and over. And, and, and really it was about the consistency. I had to be consistent. I had to be more consistent than the people I was competing against because they had a greater ability, you know, a greater range of ability where I was in a, in a smaller range. So in that smaller range, I had to be closer to the top. And that's where I talked about, you know, setting, uh, teaching my body instinct, teaching my muscles exactly what they were supposed to do. I had to be technically superior in order to be hopefully equal. I remember you saying yesterday that, that you made a statement to a group of guys that you were going to be the fastest monoskier in the world. Tell us a little bit about that and what the feedback to that was and then what happened after. Yeah, so I said I'm going to be the fastest monoskier in the world, and I said it to a couple of guys who are in my class, and, and one of the guys said, you will never be the fastest monoskier in the world. Like you, th- those guys are 30 seconds ahead of you, which, you know, 30 seconds ski racing is a sport that's determined in tenths and hundredths of a second. I was, I was effectively like half a mile behind. It's not a sport where you're, where half a mile behind is anything that even registers on the, on the finish seat sheet. And so, uh, so it was really about, about saying, okay, can I take a step back? Can I affect my equipment? Can I have my equipment help support me a bit more? And, and technically, is there something that I can do that can then push me to, to the point where I can be competitive, where these guys look at me and go, oh, okay, what are you, what are you doing there? And, and, you know, the hard part is sort of like letting the genie out, basically, where, where, uh, you know, where it's like, oh, hey, I see what you're doing technically. I see what you're doing tactically. And, uh, you know, I can... I can, I can, I can do more than you can do. And I can take advantage of that. But I was like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to try to get there. So. And so you did that, you did this run competitively for the first time. We were able to see it on the big screen. Yeah. Take yeah. us through that. Cause I, I so, love that. So that was, that was Lillehammer, Norway, which incidentally the, the world para Alpine skiing championships are going on there. Not only the Alpine, but the Nordic and the, and the snowboarding are back in Lillehammer. So I've been watching Lillehammer on my computer and I'm like I was there this was my moment so it's kind of fun for me to sort of recount that and and yeah I was I went in the downhill and going in the downhill I I went my class went early and so I went and and had my run and and you know and and really there was one thing that I remembered in the run was was this big turn and I felt like I was making too much of a turn that I was slowing down and had to, had to let it go over this big pitch. And I went over this big pitch and then, then there was the jump that I had seen every night before I could fall asleep or kept me from falling asleep in the year before I had seen it and at, a, at a previous uh, competition. And, and I approached it and I'm not very good in the air. That's kind of part of not being able to sit up into a neutral position. And, and I went off this jump and, and, flew, flew for like 60 feet, like four to six feet off the ground and landed and finished. And, and then I had to wait and I waited for everybody in my class and nobody beat me. Then I waited for everybody in the next class and nobody beat me. And then, and then, uh, and then the final class, the, the standing walking paraplegics, the amputees. And, and the last guy was, was a, was a, an amputee and, and, you know, nobody had beaten me and I watched and, and uh, he was a little behind me at the at the first split, and faster than me in the speed trap, and came over that pitch and made that turn and approached the jump, and he flew, and he landed, and he finished forty three one hundredths of a second behind me. So awesome. Yeah. So I got from half a mile behind to to being the fastest in the world, and 
realizing that goal, but also it was not just the goal for me. It was, it was this idea of, you know, impossible is entirely true until somebody does it. And, and can I, can I demonstrate that for other people, you know, and it's, and it's something that hopefully is not just about skiing, but permeates our, our regular life that it's not, Hey, that's too bad. What happened to you? It's like, well, what do you do? You know, what do you have to teach me? I love all this. And, and I know that after skiing, you've done some great things. We're going to talk about your foundation, but talk to us a little bit about Kilimanjaro <laughs> because most people hear climbing Mount Kilimanjaro and it sounds insane for somebody who's got a fully working set of legs and, but you did it. Yeah. So 19,340 foot Mount Kilimanjaro, tallest mountain in Africa, tallest freestanding mountain in the world. And actually from the gate to the summit of Kilimanjaro is greater than from base camp to the summit of Everest. So, so, you know, it's a fairly significant five different climate zones. You, it's three degrees, three degrees south of the equator has snow on the top. You start in a rainforest, you go to the heathers, the moors, the high desert, you finish on an Arctic climate zone at the top. You see a lot of stuff and, and Kilimanjaro climbing Kilimanjaro for me was Really, I mean, we're all climbing a mountain, right? We're all Sisyphus. We're all we're all pushing our boulder up the mountain, and that's that's something that people can understand. The Paralympics, in some ways, it, it's hard, it's a little bit harder context because it's not necessarily it's one person with a disability beating another person with a disability. But a mountain is like, okay, I understand. Like this is this is man or woman versus the mountain, and and to me, it was it was really an opportunity to make that statement of, Hey, you thought this was impossible for you. You think it's really impossible for me, but if I can get there, I'm going to force you to look at me differently. And, and I have to tell that story, right? We did a documentary film, which is on Amazon prime, uh, which is called, called one revolution and one revolution, the documentary. And it's about my climb of Kilimanjaro. And it's, uh, it really is about taking that thing that we think is impossible and finding a way to make it possible. And so much of, you know, it's easy to look at me climbing the mountain and say, well, that's the impossible part. But no, I mean, like getting to the mountain was the impossible part. It took two years to get to the mountain. There were a lot of times that I thought of quitting in those two years that we got to the mountain. It was developing the vehicle. It was training, going from being a sprinter to going for nine or 10 hours a day on average. It was raising the money. It was managing people. I, I had been a lone wolf. I was an individual sport athlete. Suddenly I had to, I had to manage people and marshal people and try to get everybody pointed in the same direction. I, that was, that was a huge challenge for me. And, and, but you know, for me, but also I had a tremendous amount of support along the way doing all of that. So spoiler alert, you made it to the top. <laughs> yes, I did make it to the top. Exactly. Yes. There, there's a lot that happened along the way. So it's not an entire spoiler. And, and you know, we, we won't go into the details here, but we're going to have the link to it in the, in it for Amazon prime. So anybody wants to check that out, they can, they can watch that. And it's awesome. Uh, so I know the name of that documentary is one revolution. You've also got the one revolution foundation. Talk to us about that 
in the work you're doing. So One Revolution Foundation, our mission is to turn perception of disability upside down. And that's really, in a lot of ways, I say it's, it's mine, yours, ours. Now, what are the things that trip us up? We're really good. Our program is called Name Tags, and it's about the labels that we put on ourselves and others, which are often our limitations, right? I can't do this because I'm too tired. I'm too poor. I'm too fat. I'm too, you know, I'm not educated enough. I'm not smart enough, whatever it is, right? We're really good at those excuses, but it's a resilience-based program. The motto is, it's not what happens to you. It's what you do with what happens to you. No matter who we are, something is going to go wrong. We're not defined by what we do when everything is going great. We're defined by what we do when things go wrong. And think about it. Like when you meet somebody who, is, who has come through an amazing trauma, one, you want to know what happened. You know, there's a bit of a voyeur part of it. But two, like, well, what did you do? What did you do informs me. Like, okay, I might not do exactly what you did, but at the same time, it informs me in a way that like, okay, okay, this makes it real. This makes it possible. This is the breaking the four minute mile. Like you did it. There are exceptions to the rule. And when everybody says, well, nobody can do that. It's, it's going in this direction. You know, the world is going in this direction. There are always, there are always people who come out of the trauma and the tragedy as successes. And we have to think that way to think, okay, everybody's decided the world, the, the, the sky is, is falling. Okay. But somebody's going to figure out a way that the sky is falling is an amazing opportunity. So ideologically, I love that. Tell us what you're actually doing, how name tags actually works and how you're making an impact in the world today. Yeah. So name tags. So, so it's an assembly based school program. We have transitioned now where we are doing, doing virtual programs as well, just because that is the nature of the beast at the moment. But, but it, it's about empowering kids. It really is about, I mean, it's so easy for all of us to feel like we have that reason that we can be separate, that they're like, hey, if you ever knew my deepest, darkest secret, I'd be, I'd be ostracized, right? I'd be on the outside looking in. And we think it makes us unique, but it actually makes us human. We are, it, it's the thing that binds all of us. And telling kids that, that that's the case is such a huge deal because it's so easy as a, as a kid to feel like everybody else has it all figured out. And I'm the only one who doesn't know. We've been to, I've been to over a thousand schools throughout the world. We have a couple of athletes in Southern California, a couple of Paralympic athletes who, who work with us as well, who've been to a bunch of schools there too. And, and they're, as a result, with the three of us, there are different stories that people can relate to. But what I've seen, I went through the airport one time with my wife, which gets me huge bonus points with my wife and this because this kid tracked me down and, and chanted our motto to me. And I said, well, when, when was I at your school? You know, because obviously I don't know every kid at the school, 300, 400 kids in an audience. You can't know every kid. And he said it had been five years prior. And it's like, wow, like how flattering is that for me that you remember it five years afterwards? And I mean, I was just talking to, to a friend of mine who said that his daughter wrote her college essay based on the name tags presentation. Wow. So it's formative. I mean, it's, it's kind of daunting to me in some ways. And I go, wow, really? We have that kind of impression. But, but 
Yeah, empowering kids and, and recognizing that their worlds are bigger than, than they imagine that they are and that they are more powerful than they think they are. Fantastic. And I want to I take a moment or two for you to talk to us about, you've got podcasts of your own here. So let's, let's shine a, a light on what you're doing in the podcasting world. I do. So with name tags, with the challenge of not being able to get to schools in COVID, we started a name tags chat podcast, which we do on Wednesdays. We do it live 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern time. We uh, publish it to the One Revolution page on Facebook. So we do it on Zoom, publish it to, to Facebook. We have interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community who are there. So like today, for instance, I have an athlete, a skiing athlete, who is a visually impaired athlete, a woman named Danielle Umstead, who also has MS, who was also on Dancing with the Stars. Mm. So, so Paralympic medalist. And, and you know, so, so you look at that and go, okay, like, one, you're visually impaired. That, that's a hard way to ski. I mean, when the light gets flat for most of us, we think, okay, maybe it's time to go in. That's her, that's her daily. Then the MS thing, the unpredictability of it, not knowing what's going to happen to her, if it's going to be a good day, if it's going to be a bad day, do the nerves affect what's, you know, how she feels on her most critical days? And then, and then Dancing with the Stars, you go and take from being an athlete to suddenly being on television and you have to dance in front of people and you have to learn dances. And, and, and so it's a really incredible, incredible story. I mean, that's, that to me is what we're looking at is, Celebrating the human, you know, celebrating what we're able to do as humans. We have an amazing ability to adapt. We often don't tap into that ability until we're forced to tap into that ability. Can we be more proactive and say, okay, here we go. I'm, I have no idea what I'm talking about here, but I'm going to get into this right now. And then we'll, and then hopefully I'll get better at it. Right. That's awesome. Yeah. And the other one, actually, the other one is, is Chris Waddell living it which is a sister to a television show that I'm working on. And the television show is an expert with a disability who teaches an adventure to an able-bodied person. So we're flipping that paradigm again, where, where the person with the disability is the expert and the other, the able-bodied person is somebody who, who doesn't know what's going on, which uh, you usually make that assumption of like, okay, well, this person can walk. So by virtue of that, that means that they know more. It's like, no, not the case. So we're doing that. And we have a sister show uh, called Chris Waddell Living It, which is our podcast. And that's athletes, artists, and entrepreneurs. The people who've taken the risk to figure out who they are. And the greatest risk we take is taking no risk at all. Well said. And again, we'll have links to all that good stuff in the show yeah. notes for this episode. Uh, Chris, I have loved, loved our conversation today. And, and we are at time. As you know, I ask everybody who comes on this show a single question. And that is, what is your biggest helping? That one most important piece of information you'd like somebody to walk away with after hearing our conversation today? The biggest thing for me is that our lives are going to take twists and turns. We will have a plan and most likely that plan doesn't work out the way that we thought it would. The Dalai Lama says sometimes not getting what you want can be the greatest gift of all. And remembering that sometimes not getting what you want can be the greatest gift of all. I'm getting pushed in a different direction. I don't know what I'm doing. If I can remove the emotional part of that, of, oh, I failed in my plan to recognize that, hey, 
this might be an opportunity that I had not had my eyes open to. That, to me, is my greatest helping and knowing. And, you know, it's a hard thing to do. Yeah. But if we can take that step back and go, you know, I might be going in a better direction right now. So, Be- Beautifully said. Tell us where people can find you online. Where they can find me online. So Chris Whitehall Living It is, is my uh, handle on Instagram. You can find me there. Uh, One Revolution uh, is, is also the One Revolution handle at One Revolution on, uh, on Instagram, at One Revolution on Facebook, at Chris Waddell Living It on, on Facebook. Uh, you can go to the One Revolution uh, website, which is one-revolution.org. And then also uh, Chris Waddell Living It is just about to be live. Right now it's Chris Waddell speaking, but that will be transitioning to Chris Waddell Living It. So yeah, please come find me. We will. We will. And like I said, we're going to have everything Chris Waddell in the show notes. So you'll be able to check all of this out. Chris, this has been so great. Thank you so much for coming on The Daily Helping. I loved our conversation. Thank you, Dr. Richard. My pleasure and keep up the great work. I will certainly do my best over here. And I want to thank each and every one of you as well who chose to listen to this. If you like what you heard, go give us a follow on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review because that is what helps other people find the show. But most importantly, go out there today and do something nice for somebody else, even if you don't know who they are, and post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others.